Thank you for joining us for the Veterans for Responsible Leadership podcast and Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your co-host, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran, former Air Force officer, and I'm really excited and pleased to have with us today your co-host, who is also the president and founder of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkoff, a former Navy SEAL and current emergency room physician. And our guest today, Elliot Ackerman, a former Marine, veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, a New York Times bestselling author. And I think I saw an article in the National Review that was just published today uh, entitled, or, or they just shared it today. It may be an older article, uh, but it said why I served in Iraq. So I wasn't sure if that was uh, actually just today or if that was something they just uh, shared. Welcome, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. No, I think that just came out. I'd have to go look online and see if they posted it. So, so, so Elliot, so, um, my, my first question, so you're, you've written how many books now? It looks like seven. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. My eighth comes out in May. Your eighth comes out in May. You've got, you've, you've been a finalist for the national book award. You, uh, you were Marine Corps, uh, infantry officer, uh, one of the founding members of MARSOC. You've got a silver star, a bronze star. So when are you going to actually do something with your life, man? <laughs> it's like to stay busy, man. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm really excited about having you on. It's just going to be a fun conversation. So, you know, I, I've got to start with, uh, you know, kind of the backstory here, which is, um, so when I was in the SEAL teams, um, I was in Fallujah and it turns out, uh, you know, over the years, you know, I got out and things like that and kind of made contact with people through the, the political, uh, world, including one, uh, one Admiral Stavridis who I said, you got to talk to this guy, Elliot Ackerman, who, um, you know, he'd, he'd written a book with and, you know, as kind of looking in, like, oh, he was in Felicia too, and then, uh, you know, oh, he was in one eight, which was this Marine uh, battalion that I was kind of helping out, and you know, and then I was like, wait a second, I vaguely remember a Lieutenant Ackerman from Felicia, and you know, we talked on the phone, you know, maybe a year ago or so, and I was like, oh my god, dude, we were like on the same rooftops. Yeah, that's um. You know, it's always, I mean, like, you know, everyone, if you're in the service, we always sort of play like the name game, you know, right. with, where were you? Uh, I found particularly with like, uh, with Fallujah, uh, that becomes like a very, very kind of small overlap. So it, it's like, you know, I, I, one of my best friends, uh, he and I were both in the Marine Corps. We only became friends when we both got out and met one another. Um, and you might know his name is Giskel. Uh, he works for New York City right now. He's the commissioner uh-huh. of management. And we figured out years later that not only were like we both in Fallujah at the same time, he was his platoon was the left the the leftmost unit of his infantry battalion, third battalion, first Marines, and my platoon was the rightmost unit of first battalion, eighth Marines, and we were both advancing down Route Henry in Fallujah, and we're literally yeah. across the street from each other for the entire battle, but we never met until um, until after that's, home. yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, you know, so here's what I remember, man. So for so for listeners who, you know, don't know anything about this, right? So Fallujah was this kind of uh, city that was sort of this uh, respite for uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and, and the insurgency in, in 2004. And so, you know, kind of like April 2004, the Marines kind of start taking it back. And then they call this little ceasefire. And, you know, the Iraqis weren't going to do it. And it turned out it didn't work and, and all this stuff. And then... 
you know, the powers that be decide that we're going to retake the city in November of 2004. So all these units from all over Iraq come to the outskirts of Fallujah and sort of meet up and, you know, come up with a plan. And Elliot, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what, when did you find out that you were going to be part of this sort of big offensive? It's funny you sort of mentioned how you mentioned that, because that's sort of how I remember it, too. It was like this, it was this building. So I, my... 1A, uh, the infantry battalion I was in, we showed up in Iraq in June of 2004, and we were replacing a unit that had been there for the first Fallujah battle, and everybody knew from the second we showed up that, like, anything anything bad that was happening in Al-Ambar province was sort of coming out of Fallujah, because it was this, yep. this sanctuary that had been created. So, and I remember in, like, uh, September of that year, or no, it was August of that year, our battalion, because we were an East Coast battalion. We were the one East Coast battalion, meaning a 2nd Marine Division battalion, uh, in Iraq. All the other Marine battalions were from the 1st Marine Division. And General mm-hmm. Mattis was the commander of the 1st Marine Division at that time. And I remember, in, and most of the division was supposed to rotate out in September. And so, in that August, we got called down to Camp Fallujah, and there were all these rumors of why we were there. And people were saying that, well, Mattis is going to, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to launch the offensive in September. I don't know if you remember this. And yeah. and I remember, like, a couple guys, like, went up to sort of the cloverleaf and did, like, a leader's reconnaissance with binoculars. And like, everyone was a lot of rumors. And it kind of turned out that just Mattis and all the others wanted to do it. And they're like, well, if we just set the whole thing up, maybe we'll get them to let us launch this assault. <laughs> and then, you know, finally, like, the, the powers that be are like, what are you guys doing? No, we're not, we're not going to do this now. And I think, you know, I remember Lance Corporal's, you know, privates, like, you know, 19, 20-year-old guys coming up to me and being like, you know, hey, sir, so, like, listen, like, so all of the West Coast units are going to rotate out in September, so we'll have new battalions in by then, and the presidential election is in November, so, like, we're not going to do it between September and November, but then after the election, right, like, that's when we'll probably do it, because we go home in, like, February. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right, and (laughs) I kind of knew it was happening. Uh, Yeah, yeah. The way you described it is, is how I remember that. And then there's sort of this like congregation, you know, around all these descending on the city. I've always sort of like imagined, you know, in my parents' generation, like the great festival in the mud was Woodstock. <laughs> and I feel like that was sort of like our generation's weird, like Woodstock. Because like there's like, oh, were you, you know, were you there in the mud around Fallujah, like for the assault? So, yeah, everybody gathered. And then there was this month battle, which, you know, in the history of the Iraq war was really kind of an aberration because there weren't many set piece battles like that. There was, you know, I, I don't know where you guys were staged, man, but here's what I remember. I remember too, and, you know, speaking of small world stuff and anyone who was there, maybe, maybe they remember this. And so we, we kind of went out to the city and, you know, we're calling cast for a couple of days before this thing kicked off. And, you know, the morning of, you know, the offensive, like it's going to go down or whatever, there's um, uh, the PSYOPs people start playing Hell's Bells. Yep. yep. And, you know, I was like, we're like sitting in this ditch, you know, and like, wait, is that Hell's Bells that's playing yeah, right now? I remember that and, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was wild. And, um, and so, you know, we kind of went in with, um, you know, in this battalion, the, the, the B and C companies, and you guys kind of leapfrogged over, over past yeah, exactly. us, right? Yes, yeah, so you guys were with uh, Bravo and Charlie. So the plan yep. was Bravo and Charlie were going to kind of fight into the city on the first day, and they were going to, like, open this corridor, and our battalion objective was the government center. 
which was right. like, you know like about a click into the city and so the first day of the battle it was like brown charlie fought like 500 meters into the city they like opened this corridor and then they pulled out the Amtraks, you know, which are like our armor, you know, Marine armored personnel carriers. And we all loaded. And then Alpha Company, which is the company I was in, we had like this like very precise mech race. We were going to like get in the Amtraks, haul ass down that corridor and go like 500 meters deeper, seize the government complex and then hold out there. And then Bravo and Charlie were going to fight up even to us, which is kind of what happened. Um, yep. I, I'll never forget that morning. It was like because we had we had to sit there outside the city like the whole first day um, yep. just listening on the battalion, yeah. listening to the medevacs coming in and like, and there's, you know, you're just waiting. And it was sort of this like yep. horrible day of waiting. And then early that morning, which was November 10th, the Marine Corps birthday, I remember yep. all the Marines like handing out bits of pound cake, right? Cause we all, we eat our birthday cake. And I remember it was like, you know, like, is there like exchanging communion wafers? And we loaded into the back of the tracks and I remember my company executive officer reading the commandant's birthday message as we like cross the line of departure <laughs> in the pollution. That's some like uh, you know Gunny Bazalone shit, man. That's like uh, you know uh, Chesty Puller stuff. So I'll tell you what I remember about November tenth. Um, you know, was there's this, there's this guy that I had gone to the Naval Academy with. Who, you must know his name's Sonny Ristler. And I, I know Sonny. So I. Yeah, I'll, you tell your Sonny Rissler story, then I'll tell Oh, so my Sonny Rissler story is just he rolls into the government center with, like, it wasn't MRE pound cake, man. It was, like, a legit chocolate, like, spread cake in, like, milk. And, like, we're, like, taking effective fire, and, like, there's, like, some gunnies, like, yelling at some PFC to make sure everyone gets their cake, you know? <laughs> so my so my Sonny Rissler story is, this, so on November 11th, so, like, the 10th, we kind of take the government center. Bravo and Charlie fight up, and they're, like, now online with us at the yep. government center. And you've got Highway 10 is in front of us. That, yep. you know, like, it was, like, you know, a four-, six-lane highway that bisects the city. And I think everybody thought the main line of resistance was going to be, like, up in the northwest of the city, which was the Cholon District, which is yep. where most of the fighting had been in April. But at least where we were, they were, like, really dug in on the south side of Highway 10. Yep. And so our platoon was the southernmost platoon for the company. And we were kind of, and because we got in earlier, we were still like the southernmost platoon for the battalion at that point. And my company commander at the end, you know, and like, you know, we, we had some guys get hurt. Our, what, the platoon commander got killed on the 10th. And uh, my company commander kind of calls me and was like, hey, listen, the whole battalion, like at 9 a.m., is going to cross Highway 10. Yep. Um, and so. We want you, your platoon, you guys are going to get a foothold for the company and the battalion across Highway 10. And so, and we were like, there was this kind of like V uh, intersection that people call pizza slice. I'm sure you probably know the pizza yeah. slice. And so we looked and we like picked this house in the pizza slice, which is like, okay, we'll get in this house in the pizza slice. And so we get in, so we called in an AC-130, like you prep fires on this house in the pizza slice. At like three in the morning, our platoon goes over by squad. And I was, like, moving in the back of the first squad. We walk into the house, and, like, the, the AC-130 had basically, like, blown out the whole back wall of the house. There's, like, dust everywhere. <laughs> like, we're like, this was a bad plan, and we can't right. the house. So we wind up basically going, you know, like, well, we can't go back because, like, that's, you know, mission failure. So we wind up going, like, deeper into the city. And long story short, we're, they wind up in this house that's, like, about 250, 300 meters ahead of the battalion. Like, frankly, like, too far ahead. And yep. over the course of the next day, we basically had to get cut off and surrounded. So, like, 
you know, the sun comes up and we see like we're surrounded by insurgents who don't know we're that deep. And so we, you know, we start engaging them, but then they figure out where we are. Our platoon gets in like a pretty bad spot. My platoon sergeant has been like, got shot through the head. One of the machine guns in the platoon was like shot through the femoral and was bleeding out. And we go and we call it, we're calling it a medevac. And we have these two Amtraks that come in to try to run this medevac for us. And they're, they have a hard time finding us, but they very quickly, one of them gets taken out by an RPG, like catastrophic kill this Amtrak. So this Amtrak's now burning in the middle of Highway 10. Um, oh, the other one goes back to the government center. And I've got like, you know, these two urgent medevacs we're trying yep. to work. And it's all going down on the radio. And who pops up on the radio? Sonny Rizzler. <laughs> and he's like, and he's in like, he's got his mobile assault. And basically he's like Humvees. You know, right. like no armor, no real armor. And like, yeah, yeah. Like, Two sandbags, maybe. He's like, hey man, where you at? I'm coming. And you know, like, like my state of grace, like Sonny and his platoon come like screaming down Highway 10. You know, I'm like throwing all sorts of, you know, you know, I'm like, I, I'm like a burning man. I've got so much colored smoke going, you know what I mean? And like, and you know, and he found us and he got those, you know, and he got those two Marines out and they both survived. Like, yeah, he's, totally he's good to go, man. That dude is good to go. He's a good guy. So let me ask you this, man. So, you know, totally, totally changing directions here. You know, you, you stopped working for Uncle Sam and started writing and my question for you is, and, and have written, you know, not only these books, but, you know, you write for the Atlantic, you've gone over to Ukraine now a couple of times, you've, you've kind of done, you know, the, the war correspondent thing. And that seems to be not, you know, it's, it's an uncommon sort of career path, but not unprecedented. And, and I wonder what it is about sort of your experience or, or, you know, why did you start writing about this? Why did you start writing about war? Well, I think I, I think I write and, you know, and all writers, right. You're writing about the, the human condition, you know, what it means to like be a person, but I think war kind of takes your aperture of what it means to be a person. Like it throws it wide open, meaning like, as you know, like in war, you see like the absolute, worst things most depraved things we're capable of doing as human beings and you see them and you try to understand why and how can we do this on the other hand too you see like you know the highest levels of human virtue like friendship and love and courage play out too in war so it kind of throws this aperture wide open um so i wanted to write and you know war gives me a subject through which i can kind of write about that whole that whole spectrum did you had you never been to war, had 9-11 not happened, would you still be writing? I think I would. Um, you know, it's funny, the people who've known me, so I come out of, you know, I come out of the military and people will sometimes ask me, sort of as you did, like, right, like, hey, you know, it's so weird, you were like a infantry officer, then like a commando, and now you write fiction, and, you know, that those seem so divergent from one another. Um like the people who've actually known me the longest since like I was a kid are like, you know, we always thought it was so weird that you went into the Marines, you know, and it makes a lot of sense now that you're a writer. I only brand it up because like, you know, I think we all sort of, you know, like Walt Whitman says, right. We contain um, multitudes. Like if you'll, if you'll give me like an anecdote that kind of, I guess, explains this in my psychology. So like I was growing up a total skate rat burnout kid, <laughs> And when I was about 17, I had this, like, come to Jesus epiphany. Uh, like, I never played a sport. And then, like, 
I had a opinion when I was 17, like, I'm going to go in the Marines. Like, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to, like, try to be the person I want to be. I'm going to go do this. So like, my senior year in high school, I, like, lettered in three sports. Uh, yeah. I did a 180. And, and when I was in the Corps, I mean, in my, my, my 20s, I would have this reoccurring dream. And in that dream, I would be, like, hanging out at the beach, surfing, or at the skate spot, skateboarding. My hair would be super long again. And I'd, like, you know maybe like, you know, be doing some illicit substance I shouldn't be doing that I did when I was like a teenager. And then I'd like wake up like, you know, in a panic, like I'd lost the edge, you know, and I'd like touch my, I still have my high and tight. And I'm like, oh, thank God, you know, I didn't regress to that being what I used to be. So I, I always would have that dream, maybe for like six weeks I'd have it. And then I got out and I, I stopped working for Uncle Sam and I never had that dream again. But now I have a different dream and I have this dream about every six weeks. And in my dream, I'll be back in Quantico, like in training area 10, doing like the land navigation course, looking for my box, you know, trying to pass land nav. And I'll be like in a total panic and I'm like not going to find it. I'm going to wash out and they're going to make me like a financial management officer and like life will be over. And I wake up again and I'm like, oh, my God. So when I psychoanalyze myself, why do I have that dream now? And I think it's because, you know, in life, it's not actually like you have to sort of suppress certain parts of your personality to do certain things at different times. So like, you know, to be a Marine officer, there are parts of my, who I was like, maybe suppress is too strong a word, but like, I'm just not engaging that part of me. Right. right? And then, you know, and then you move and you do something else and you're, then you are engaging with that part of who you are, but you're not engaging with another part of who you are. So like the part of me, you know, that got to be a troop leader and got to plan missions and do all like, I love doing that stuff. Yeah. I don't really do that stuff anymore. I mean, a little bit, you know, if I'm traveling for work or covering conflict, but not in the same way. Um, but I do get to do this other work that was creative work that I never got to do anymore. So I, you know, I don't, I think I kind of, I'm saying this like more broadly to like the audience and us as vets, um, you know, you, you can't do it forever, but just because you can't do it forever, it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's probably other parts of all of us that we weren't able to access while we were wearing the uniform. And, you know, and maybe it's the time in life to access those parts of who you are. Did you, did you have a tough transition getting out? You know, I, I sometimes feel pretty blessed, like, you know, compared to, you know, it's, it seems like compared to some of my friends, um, I kind of did, did pretty well getting out and, and even saying that, you know, there were, there were times I felt, you know, lost, depressed, you know, all these sorts of things. What, what was it like for you, you know, that, that first year post-military? Well, I, you know, I knew I wanted to write and I got out and I kind of started working very quietly, working on a book, not telling anyone I was doing it because saying, you know, at that point, saying I wanted to be a writer, it sounded really silly because I had nothing to show for it. It was like saying, you know, like, you know, I want to be a dancer. I'm just going to dance, you know, <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so I didn't tell anyone I was doing this on the side. Um, and I spent a couple of years like, you know, I worked in politics for a year. I had a government fellowship for a year and like all on the side I was writing quietly. Um but, you know, it wasn't like a straight line for me. Like the first book that I wrote, which got me my agent, like was rejected by 26 publishers, you know, mm-hmm. and that was like a hard and dark night of the soul for me because I was staring into this abyss of like, OK, like I feel so grateful that I have identified the thing that I want to do. Yeah. Um, but what if I can't do it? And that terrified me. You know, what if, yes, I mean, you know, I, at least I, I, you know, I, I can imagine there's this other thing I want to do, but I might not actually be able to do it. And that was very um frustrating and scary at times um you know and took sort of a, a certain degree of 
you know, perseverance just to, to get to the other side of that. Um, so I feel very lucky in that I at least knew how I wanted to repurpose myself. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just like I made that decision and then it was smooth sailing from there. I had to, I had to work my ass off and hustle. Do you think, you know, there's so many people who get out and kind of write about their experience, right? And so, you know, in, in my head, there's kind of this sort of division between a book about war and like war literature. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a difference between, uh, you know, graves and, you know, like some Navy SEAL book about like, you know, American Sniper or whatever it is. And, and I'm curious, like what you think about, you know, trying to, and, and for me, it sort of feels like, you know, one is sort of putting down one's experience, right? When there's, you know, nothing wrong with that. But then one is sort of trying to capture these kind of universal truths that, that you mentioned. And I wonder what your, you know, what your take on that is. Like, what is it about going to war that makes people want to, you know, capture it and, and sometimes find meaning in it? Well, I think, you know, <clears throat> I think we... I mean, many people have, 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 have talked about this and probably like the most, you know, the most well-worn sort of quote on this is like the Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories and, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Like it's the idea, you know, like we make meaning, you know, things, ha things happen to us and then we organize them into stories to give them meaning so we can understand them, if that makes, you know, if, if you follow me. So I think that, um, and I think that when it comes to war, so much happens so the desire to give it a shape and give it a meaning is very visceral in people and i mean you know, i'm sure you've had this experience you have probably had this experience where you know like you get out of a firefight like what's the first thing everybody wants to do you know they want to sit there and but man did you see and smitty went up there and then jonesy went and everyone starts immediately telling the story and sometimes you're telling the story because like the unit's doing it like an after action uh or sometimes you're just telling the story because you people like all want to understand what happens and very quickly there's a story that gets built around it. And I think the reason we do it is to kind of give it a meaning. Um, and so I think the, you know, the types of books that I try to write, um, I think try to provide that meaning, not like in a prescriptive way, but, you know, but try to be a little more, you know, introspective. Um, you know, I've never wanted to write a book that's like a, you know, no shit there I was book. Uh, right. Or, you know, yeah, man, then he can, you know, yeah, it was, you know, I, 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 you know, I hope to write something that, uh, uh, yeah, it was a little more uh, in, enduring and thoughtful. Who's your favorite kind of literature on war writer? Oh man, that's a tough question. But I guess I'll, I'll answer it sort of obliquely. Is the thing I like talking about most is actually is all the books that we, you know, we have this like tendency to really like put writers and books into kind of neat genres. And like, you know, war is in so much writing that we don't even think of. Like, you know, I think the greatest war novel that comes out of Second World War is The Catcher in the Rye. And most people like don't think of that book as being a book about war. But if you know anything about like J.D. Salinger, like, you know, J.D. Salinger, like, you know, landed on D-Day. He yeah. fought in the Hurricane Forest. Like he liberated the concentration camps. He was all over World War II. 
he wrote about it in a couple short stories, but like, you know, oftentimes we teach catcher the rye and like Holden Caulfield, you know, it's protagonist. And he sort of has sort of this like bitched out voice, you know, where everybody's a phony and nobody understands him. And it's right. this novel, like teenage, you know, disaffection. And it's not like I read, I've read that book later. I'm like, I recognize that voice like that, you know, that guy who's so cynical walking around New York trying to make it to the duck pond to like reclaim this sort of innocence that, you know, he lost or maybe never even had. Like that's the voice of a veteran. You know, Holden Caulfield is yeah. a veteran. And if you read that book's last line, the last line of The Catcher in the Rye is never tell anybody anything. Otherwise, you'll start missing everyone. And that's how the book ends. And I'm like, that's a war novel. He just doesn't put the war in it. I mean, another great example is, you know, like The Great Gatsby. Like, yeah. World Wars all over The Great Gatsby. Um, sure. So I think it's, you know, so who affects me? I, I, I would say, you know, the writers that are able to do something new and interesting with war, whether it's, you know, putting in the foreground or even in the background, I think those are the types of writers that, um, that I think are exciting. Do you, you know, what about the non-war author? Who do, who do, you, who do you find yourself drawn to? Oh, man. I mean, you know, I try to read really widely. I mean, you know, non-work. Now, I like, you know, I love Didion. I love my wife, Lee Carpenter, is a great writer. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, I love Graham Greene. Um, you know, I, you know, Orson Scott Card. I like to write, you know, I read science fiction, too. Ted Chiang. I'm so, I, I really, um, if you're a writer, you're also a reader. And I read a lot, and I, I take my reading life as seriously as I take my writing life, and I really try to read across genre and anything. I, I, I kind of just make the only criteria is, you know, is it good? You know, if I'm picking up something, am I confident that it's going to be good? Uh, and then I don't really care kind of what, you know, whether it's a war book or a non-war book or a romance novel or whatever, however it's been pigeonholed, I'm trying to look for some stuff that's good. One of the really Is interesting things, about, oh, I'm sorry, oh, go ahead. Just, I was just going to say one of the really interesting things you can do as, as a veteran is to read a, a story about war that was written by your enemy or that was written by someone who was there that wasn't in the same uniform you were in. So when you talk about the universality of it, it really comes home that, that sort of everyone does this and it really provides you with a unique perspective. You know, you have your, your version of what you saw and trying to make sense of it. And there were folks who were there maybe who were just civilians or just bystanders who didn't have access to the information or perspectives that you have. And they're trying to make sense of it too. And it just gives you a really different uh, feel when you when you come across that, I've I've read a couple from authors uh, in Iraq, and I wish I'd, I'd made a note of the the specific titles and names, but they just kind of it's just such an interesting feel when you. I wondered if you come across anything like that in, in your in your research. No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of great. There's um you know Frankenstein in Baghdad is a great uh, that's one. book by an Iraqi author um, that I really enjoyed. Um, a lot of great Arabic authors. Death is hard work is uh, a book. Uh, written by a great Syrian novelist that is actually uh, a retelling of Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, but told in the, Syrius, in the Syrian Civil War. Um, you know, the particularly in a novel, you know, you, with your characters, you know, you're going to have characters who are three-dimensional people, and some of them are going to be good, and some of them are, you know, maybe not be so good, but, like, I've always felt my job as the writer is to, like, when, my, when a character steps onto the page, my job is never to judge them. It's to allow them to like make their case to the reader for who they are and the way they see the world as though they were making their case before God um, and give them that space. So that, by definition, forces you to sort of 
you know, put on different masks and, and, and view the world in ways that might not align with your worldview. And uh, oftentimes, like, I've, I've had books that have come out, and people come up to me, and, like, with the passage of the book, and they're like, this character said, you know, like, is this what you think? I'm like, it's not what I think. It's what that, char-, you know, it's like, that's what the character thinks, you know, like, right. <laughs> you know, but, but isn't one of your books kind of like that? Didn't you sit down with an insurgent at some point, and, and can you talk well, a little bit about I've written a couple of memoirs, and I wrote one called Places and Names. Uh, and one of the through lines there is um, a friend of mine named Abu Hassar, who uh, uh, he fought for Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, in Al Anbar province. And he and I met in uh, late 2013 in uh, southern Turkey uh, when he was uh, he's from Derizur in Syria, and so he wound up as a, a refugee in South Turkey. And so another friend of mine introduced the two of us, kind of saying, you know, I think you guys might get along. And so we sort of sat down. Uh, at first, you know, a little bit hesitant of one another, but he was like, hey, let's see two veterans of the war in Iraq talk about their war, but we fought on opposite sides. And, um, you know, and he and I had, uh, you know, had a couple of great conversations that, you know, led to a multi-year friendship. So, and I think for us, it was just this realization that, you know, we had both had this experience that was defining to us. And we both wanted to understand the experience. And at a certain point, you realize you're not going to completely understand the experience until you understand the folks who are on the opposite side a little bit. And, um, you know, we certainly didn't, like, agree on everything. Um, but, um, but I think the fact that we had been similarly defined, uh, well, you know, it was, it was enough of a, a launching point for, for uh, you know, for us to have a relationship. That's another you know, that's another thing that, that comes up over and over and it seems to be kind of timeless. You know, I think of, of Hal Moore, you know, talk, you know, he's, he's got this addendum to, we were soldiers once where he's, you know, goes back and walks the battlefield with this, this NBA, I think it was like a colonel or something like that, you know, and, and they talk about, you know, we were here and we thought this and, you know, we were here and you thought that. I mean, it's, it seems to be something that, um, you know, I wouldn't say every veteran, but a certain percentage of veterans, you know, want to, you know, someday as old men, you know, walk in peace or, or older men anyway, and, and yeah. kind of, you know, talk through that. Um, I, I would love to do that, you know, in Fallujah. I have no idea if that'll ever happen, but it'd be yeah, pretty I, cool. I, mean, I went, I went back, I went back in 2016 um, and, uh, you know, went back to the government center. I went to that house that I mentioned before, we were surrounded and like kind of wow. sit yeah. on the top where, you know, I'd been like belly down for most of that day. Um, was it different? Like, you know, when I go back to my childhood house, I'm like, oh, this is not what I remember, you know? It, it was it was different in some of the government center, like what was just, just isn't even there. Um, the, uh, the ISIS guys had just flattened it because um, it, you know, represented the government of Iraq. And um, that house, I got up on the roof and the thing that struck me the most was I was sort of looking when I got up on the roof, it looked sort of looked familiar because, you know, there are those fields of fire that I'd spent that day, like, yeah. just staring down all day. So then, like, right. it back to me because the perspective was the same. And then I was looking down one of them, and after we got out of that house, we had, the way we got out of it was we had to, like, basically blow out the back wall because they had the door dialed in. So, you know, we were just been shot to bits if we tried to go out the door. And then right after we got out the back wall, my radio operator and I kind of wound up probably like 15 or 20 minutes basically like pinned down um just like this like little rubble cinder block wall if you can imagine four cinder blocks three kind yeah. of you know just sort of rubble like enough for two guys to kind of like be crouched down one on the radio you know like doing that and the wall was still there 
Yeah. And that's what blew my mind. That like this, you know, this palimpsest of war had rolled through there, like a third battle of Fallujah. Ten, you know, and this little crummy wall was still sitting there exactly where it had been 12 years before. Um, so just little details like that are what really caught my mind going back. But I think that, you know, when we look at our wars in particular, um, I feel this way, and it's certainly, you know, it's intuitive to me. It's like, you know, so many wars that the United States fought were, gener- you know, were generationally defining. Usually they're generationally defining events. Like my parents were the Vietnam generation. Like, you know, my yeah. dad didn't fight in Vietnam, but it defined his generation. Same thing in the World War II generation. Like, you know, the 9-11 wars did not define our generation. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've written this, but like, you know, you look at like, there's no lost generation with us. I would say, if anything, we're kind of the lost part of a generation. And yeah. as such, because we've been defined by these wars, it's, you know, it makes a lot of sense that like, well, who are the other folks who are defined by them? And many of them, they were defined by these wars and they don't carry blue passports, but it doesn't matter. We sort of are all wound up in this fraternity of those years. And I think as we get older, there's more of an appetite to kind of let the antipathy go and sort of understand, you know, who one another were. I think that's a, you know, kind of a great way to look at it. It's, you know, I, I've, this is a, um, a comment made by one of my SEAL buddies one time, you know, he was like, you know, it would be way more fun to be an insurgent. And, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, like, I, I understand like not even like, I mean, just like, you know, to try to creep around the American military machine and like, you know, get it done. Like what, you know, what a, what a challenge, right? Like, you know, in, um, yeah, it would be, it would be really, it'd be really cool to talk to, to some of those guys about, you know, their experience at, at some point in, you know, our time on earth. Um, so let's talk for a second about Ukraine. What have you, what have you been doing over there? I know, I know you've written several pieces for the Atlantic, which I've, I've devoured, but, um, you know, what's, what's, how does going to, you know, a place where, I, you know, I wouldn't say we don't have a dog in this fight, right? Like, you know, America is very clearly on the side of, of Ukraine, but, you know, what is it like as, you know, a non-combatant and a non-country member to be in a place where there's a, an active war? Well, you know, I, um, uh... I, I started going to Ukraine before the war. Actually, the first book I wrote was this novel called Green on Blue, which is basically it's the story of an American who's killed by an Afghan, but it's all told from the perspective of the Afghan. And um, uh, that book came out in Ukraine, in Ukrainian, with Ukrainian publishing house. And so I was, when, in 2016, I went on a book tour in Ukraine. And the, my, the market for the book in Ukraine were um, Ukrainians who were Soviet veterans of the war in Afghanistan. Wow. And so... That's wild. wild. And so, and met some of those guys. And they told me that it was actually sort of difficult for them in Ukraine because um, after the Maidan uh, and after 2014, you know, they were Ukrainian, but many people sort of held them in suspicion because they also fought with the Russians. And so they were sort of in this weird liminal space. Um, but um, having done, you know, a few trips to Ukraine before the war, I also did a State Department's Writers Exchange there. Um, the one thing I really just got the memo on was that, you know, like Ukrainians, particularly post-2014, like do not like Russians. So uh, I don't want to claim any type of like deep prescience, 
Russia <laughs> invaded and like when Russia invaded in you know February twenty fourth of last year, like there was just a little part of me that was like, I don't know how this is gonna go. Like I yeah. just don't see them rolling over and like they're they're pretty tough and they yeah. do not like Russians. I mean just stuff that you would go into a bar and a toilet paper in the restroom would have Putin's face on it. And like that was yeah. like ah ha ha, you could buy that everywhere, or you would walk through the town square and there'd be Ukrainians and you I and mean, this is before the invasion you know, taking up collections for the guys who are, you know, down to the Donbass where the Russians had already made their incursion. So, but it's very, you know, being there as a reporter, it's just, it's so different than our wars because, um, first of all, you know, it's happening in a major European city, in major, major European hub. Um, there's much more of a defined front line, unlike Iraq or, you know, Syria that I covered too. Um, you know, and you're generally welcome. Like the Ukrainians, you know, they want you there. Um, right. Or to go try to cover Syria or Iraq, you know, you, you don't know sort of who's who or who's on whose side. And you're, you know, you're always worried, you know, you know, some ISIS cell member is going to snatch you up or you're going to a checkpoint somewhere. That, so there's just it's, it's much more conventional. And it feels yeah. like a little bit of, um, you know, a throwback where, you know, you'll be, you know, you'll be in Kiev or Lviv or, Lviv or wherever you are. And like the air raid signals all go off and everyone runs down to the basement shelter. And you feel like, you know, you're in a scene from the Second World War, like there are right. air raids. Um, but the air raid goes off on your cell phone because everyone downloads an app on their cell phone. So everybody's cell phone goes off. And that's how you know there's an air raid. So, um, yes, yeah, so to me, it's been this sort of this odd kind of back to the future war uh, where it feels like something that we haven't seen in a long time, uh, but translated kind of into contemporary warfare. Is it hard to... Is it hard to you know, not maintain professionalism, but, you know, is it hard to, you know, sort of be unbiased or are you, do you try to remain neutral? I mean, are you, are you interested in covering, you know, the Russian conscripts who, you know, who was sent to Ukraine? Is that, um, how do you feel about that? Well, I'd be interested to cover the Russian conscripts, you know, sure. But yeah. I don't think that I don't, you know, I don't think that the the truth is unbiased. I think, you know, I think the facts sort of speak for themselves. So I don't feel like I have to worry about being, you know, necessarily being biased. Um, right. Facts, you know, the facts don't have any bias. And there's pretty obvious what's going on there, I think. But there's certainly moments that have like pushed me to kind of see beyond my like Americanized perspective of the war. You know, sort of like when I. The first trip I took there after the invasion was in uh, early March, and I sort of showed up, and, and people may or may not remember this, but like at that time, kind of one of the strong narratives in the American media was like, hey, this is Putin's war, it's not the Russian people's war, you know, the Russian people need to stand up against Putin. And that's like, I think for Americans, it's like something that's very intuitive to us, you know, like, hey, it's not the people who are bad, you know, it's right. the government that's bad. Right. And uh, if the people will rise up against the bad government, you know, we'll be okay. And I sort of landed on the ground in Ukraine, and I guess, you know, in, in some interviews I was doing, I was, I was kind of hitting some of those notes and the questions I was asking, and I had a couple of Ukrainians just like, stop me cold in my tracks. They're like, you need to understand, like, the Russian people are complicit in this war. You do not seem to appreciate our long history with Russia and sort of how paternalistic Russia has always been to us in refusing to even recognize our existence. You know, I had this one... Um, and I wrote about this. I sat down with this one historian. His name's Yaroslav Herziak. And, um, you know, he's sort of like a great, you know, popular Ukrainian historian. Thinks kind of like a, you know, I don't know, like a, a John Meacham type character in Ukraine. And 
And what he explained to me, which was not obvious, and this maybe gets to your question of my biases, was he said, listen, you need to understand that Russia has a spiritual mission. Russia's spiritual mission, and this goes for Putin and the majority of the Russian people, is they view their spiritual mission as being to save the world from the decadence of the West. He's like, now, you Americans, you have a spiritual mission. You may not realize it, but like, your spiritual mission is you think you're the city on the hill, the last S-Pope for the world. You're this great democratic society that everyone's trying to emulate. It's like, that's your spiritual mission. Their spiritual mission is to save the world from the decadence of the West. And when they look at their history, they, they view themselves as central to history is that they've done it twice. When Napoleon was running roughshod over Europe, they saved the world from the decadence of Napoleon uh, in 1812. Then when yeah. Hitler came on the scene, they saved the world from Hitler at Stalingrad in 1943. Like, so when Putin calls Zelensky a Nazi and everyone in America says, how can you call him a Nazi? He's Jewish. This makes no sense. So what you need to understand is when Putin says Nazi, he means what he's the manifestation of Western decadence. Zelensky represents Western decadence and NATO aggression. And Putin is going to stand against the West and against the decadence of the West. That's their spiritual mission. That's what he's articulating. And then Yaroslav made the point to me, he said, so let me ask you a question. He said, if you're, a, if you're a religious person, maybe you're a deeply devout Christian or Muslim, does suffering bring you closer or further from your God? Like, I would argue that when you suffer, if you're religious, your suffering will bring you closer to your God, like Job. He's like, and if there's one thing the Russian people know how to do, it's suffer. He's like, so your entire American strategy where you think you're going to apply sanctions to the Russian people and they're just going to cave and overthrow Putin, he's like, it's incredibly misguided. You're not going to cleave the Russian people away from Putin by doing this. You're just going to drive them closer and closer together. Mm -hmm. And he said that to me almost a year ago, and I think it's really proven to be true, at least from everything I've seen, that, you know, this sort of hasn't worked. And it's caused the Russians to kind of, you know, to dig down into this spiritual mission and this framing of, uh, you know, Ukraine led by Zelensky as being sort of this, you know, mock day manifestation of Western decadence. So that's kind of an Did interesting point. Of, yeah, I was going to say, we had, uh, we talked to Admiral Stavridis uh, not long ago, and, and I'd mentioned that I thought this looked like a protracted conflict. I mean, it's been going on really since 2014, so you could argue it already is. Uh, but his take was that he didn't think it was. He, he thought that it was going to be over well, within the next year or two. And, and if I hear what you're saying from the Ukrainians correctly, that, that the, the Russian people have a much more, a larger reservoir of a will to fight than we think they do, wouldn't that suggest maybe that it's going to last longer than, than perhaps we, we hope or think it will? Well, the one thing I know is that it's, you know, predicting and prognosticating what's going to happen in a war is like a total loser. Um, so I, I will, I will, uh, I will appeal to the wisdom of Socrates, which is, I know that I am wise because I know that I know nothing. Um, I don't know. Listen, I do think that the Russian strategy is if it becomes a long war, Russia wins. If the Ukrainians can figure out how to turn it into a short war, they win. But that's a very, you know, that, that's, that's difficult to do. You know, we're sitting here, it's mid-March, like this coming fighting season, you know, and the, the, the spring and summer offensives that manifest are going to be really, really important. Because if we go through, you know, this spring and summer and the, you know, and the weapons buildups that are going on and the Ukrainians haven't been able to, like, make, you know, really meaningful gains on the battlefield, it's, it's tough to see how 
the conflict necessarily resolves itself. And it would seem to me the Russian play is let's just drag this into a second year, into a third year. Let's, you know, let's see who wins in the election in the United States in 2024, because this war can just as easily end at an American or European ballot box as it can on a battlefield in Ukraine. Um, so yeah. I think that's what the Russians are playing for. I think the Ukrainians, you know, if I got to think they're smart enough to understand, like, hey, we got a, we really got a year here where we got to make some big gains and, um, and and land some blows that are going to convince the Russians maybe they have more to gain by negotiating with us than fighting it out a few more years. So, so I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I wonder if the, you know, the the thing that struck me, you know, kind of the most just just watching this back home and having having never been to this country myself is is um you know the scale of the the casualties yeah. you know yeah. i mean compared to compared to what we did right like you know I, i've got this little text chain with you know my buddies that i was in i was in fallujah with and you know we we talk every now and then and and you know one of them said something to the effect of basically like imagine fallujah but they have all the same capabilities and numbers that we do and like, just what a god awful shit show that would have been. And you know, it's like, yeah, that. I mean, that's terrifying to me to think of. You know, if they had AC one thirties, if they had drones, if you know, if they had you know the same numbers, right? Like, I mean, we outnumbered those guys. I mean, it, it it's just the the tactical complexity and, and the casualties, the scale of this is just. I mean, it's heartbreaking, right? Well, and what you see too is then your ability to maneuver grinds down. So, like, in Fallujah, we went through the city in a week. And the reason we could go through it in a week was because, you know, the guys we were facing, you know, I mean, they, you know, they were putting up a fight. But whenever we could fix them, you know, we had the resources to bring up to, you know, to destroy them and move forward. And what you can see in, like, in a place like Bakhmut and why they're fighting there now for the, you know, fifth, sixth month is because you've got two sides that are equally matched. So everybody's just, you know, dug in. And right. only come in like very, very narrow increments because to try to bite off more is, is you know, it's just suicide. Um, Elliot, I know you're you're running short on time, but, you know, you said something a little earlier, man, and, and I wanted to, um, you know, bring it up. And, and, you know, we haven't done this on the podcast before, but uh, so I, I was there when when uh, when Dan, uh, Dan Malcolm was was killed. And, um, you know, who was the, the weapons platoon commander that you, you mentioned? And, and I wonder if you'd join me just, you know, you guys for a brief kind of moment of silence here. Thanks, man. I, you know, it, I, I think about those, I think about those days every day, you know, it, it is, you know, and, and, uh, I, I, yeah, we'll carry that with us our, our entire lives, and you know, the, whatever we do for the rest of our life is is going to be colored through you know some of those events. But um, Elliot, where can our listeners? Uh, what do you have? You have a book coming out this summer, and where can they find you? Yes, yeah, so I have a book that comes out in May. Uh, the title is Halcyon, and uh, yeah, if you're interested, pick up a copy. Uh, it can be found wherever good books are, are sold. But I would be remiss if I didn't say try to support your local independent bookstore. Uh, right. Pretty easy to find. I'm uh, ElliotAckerman.com, at ElliotAckerman on Twitter, uh, ElliotAckerman on Instagram. I think that's about all my different accounts, but I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, man, and, and keep up the good work. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, cool. So, Jason, we can kind of end it there, but hey, Elliot, you know, have you ever gone on Ryan Holiday's podcast, The Daily Star? Yeah, a couple of okay, times. Okay, you have. 
Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. I like Brian. Yeah, he's a good guy. I was gonna say if you hadn't, I, I'd love to to turn you guys, you know, match you guys together. But yeah, he, you know, yeah, he's, actually, he's I just sent him out about Halcyon. I want to come do it for Halcyon, but he said he's just doing in person stuff now, so I don't know if I'm gonna get down to. Office. Oh, interesting. Okay, all right, yeah. cool. All right, thanks, man. Next time I'm in New York, we got to get a beer. Yeah, man. Nice meeting you. Yeah, you too, right. Jason. Take care, buddy. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America, brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org.